Hi, welcome to Morning Talk. I'm Aaron. Today, I'm going to bring you my interview with John Verveke from the University of Toronto. Um, what brought him to my attention was a series of videos he has up on YouTube of lectures, one-hour lectures called Awakening from the Meaning Crisis. And throughout the course of the lectures, he gives a history of Western thought um, and, and kind of some ways that maybe our thinking has been skewed and, and, and we've moved towards life seeming um, meaningless. And uh, it's really interesting because he is not approaching it from a religious context. It's, it's, it's unusual to hear someone talking about meaning and the importance of meaning from kind of a scientific and psychological um, standpoint. So I found that really interesting. I found it really um, just useful. And so I recommend that series. He's about 30 in right now, and there's going to be 50 episodes. I know 50 hours seems like a lot, but if this kind of thing interests you, I think uh, it'll be well worth your time. So um, also as a conversationalist, he's probably one of the most generous and engaged conversationalists I've ever spoken to. I'm really hoping to get to speak to him again in the future. Uh, so like and subscribe to this if you like this kind of content. I'd love to bring you more of it. So without further ado, here is my conversation with John Verveke. Yeah, so John Verveke, Park, it's very nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Um, just because, yeah, there you have very little for this. Um, I have uh, this YouTube channel that I'm starting up, and it's uh, it's my own way. I hadn't heard of you when I started working on it, but in my own way, it's uh, an attempt to help with the meaning crisis. Although Great. I had not I had not put those words to it until I found. Um, so I have a couple of videos so far, one of which is kind of exploring and critiquing the Jordan Peterson phenomena um, mm -hmm. with a guy called Paul Vanderclay, who's sort of a somewhat of an expert on him. And then the, the other one was a right out of left field for most people. And it was an interview with Sargent, who's a uh, flat earth, um, like the leading light of the flat earth movement, if you can call it that. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I thought that talking to you about the flat earth would be a really interesting, like it's a really interesting test case or a really maybe extreme version of some uh, things that you talk about. Um, I should preface the conversation by saying that I have a odd and kind of warm view towards the flat earth movement because I, Unlike all the articles I've ever read about it, um, I have a feeling that the impetus for wanting to believe it comes from a legitimate place of need that's been created by maybe the psychological conditions in the West and, uh, and in the world in general. And I, my in introduction, and I'm sorry to give you a little bit um, no, take your time, please. biography here, but um, when when my daughter was born, so she's my second child, um, I was, uh, my desire to understand my own mind and the world went into like absolute overdrive. 
and uh, being from a evangelical Christian background, um, the first thing I turned my spotlight on was my personal faith. Sure. Uh, in time, I discovered these long, wordy videos about why the earth is flat <laughs> on yeah. YouTube. It just blew my mind, but I had this weird, I had this, this curiosity as to if my beliefs had any comparison to the flat earth, just because the flat earth was so wild right. and Christianity is so accepted, the, the idea of belief really like, really came to the front of my mind. And I watched these things without sure. a lot of even found myself hoping that the flat earth would would find a champion that would tv you know and even though i never have believed that the earth was flat i just but i never hated them either so yeah i, I wanted to preface the conversation by saying I, I actually don't want to insult the flat earth they think they've had that done a million times and in my interview with mark Sargent, which you might actually find interesting once it's up um he he was really candid about the spiritual aspect and the sure. the aspect of meaning that they find mm -hmm. in, um, in yep. the flat earth. So yep. before we dive into that, um, I'm hoping that this video will attract flat earth people and John Ravakey people. But for the flat earth people, could you describe briefly um, your, your idea about the meaning crisis and briefly what your book is about? Sure. Okay. Um, so first of all, I, I know Paul. We just did an an interview together. There's a, a YouTube uh, a, a, a episode of that up. If you want to watch it, him and I discussing. We're going to have another discussion sometime in August. Um, so um, wow. uh, so you might find that interesting. Uh, and uh, I would also recommend you might want to take a look at the uh, the the YouTube posting that Jonathan Pajot did from as part of the symbolic world because he has one on. The flat Earth, which is uh, much more oh. much more sympathetic along the lines that you are pointing to, and he also, um, in ways that I think are convergent but perhaps different for me, thinks it has to do with uh, the meaning crisis. And I know Jonathan uh, quite well too, so I would recommend yeah. uh, those two things uh, if it make connections to what you're talking about. I should Absolutely. maybe just say a little bit about who I am. Um, yes. I, I'm John Ravicki. Assistant, hopefully soon, associate professor at the University of Toronto in cognitive psychology and cognitive science. Cognitive science is interdisciplinary. You have to get training in like philosophy, linguistic psychology, machine learning, neuroscience, things like that. And then you try to integrate them all together. And I'm do I put that integration together in order to try and address what I think is a central problem facing um the west perhaps the world to reach which western culture is imposed on the world for good or for ill um and and that's the that is what i've been I've been calling the meaning crisis and there's just very broadly there's two aspects of the crisis um there's a historical argument about what happened to our worldview which is what we're going to be talking about exactly today right uh what happened to our worldview such that people feel uh, increasingly radically disconnected from themselves, from each other, uh, from reality. Uh, they have no 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 framework to guide them uh, to cultivate wisdom, self-transcendence. If they have anomalous experiences, mystical or otherwise, they have nothing, no good guidance other than sort of a negative therapeutic, no, 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 or oh, no, thing. But people have 
they have non-pathological mystical experiences, awakening experience, large number of 30 to 40 percent of the population, and they have no framework, you know, what, what to do with this challenge that's given to them. They feel like they've come into contact with something more real. What do they do with it, right? Or, or on the other hand, they, they fall into, you know, existential despair or, or even like yourself, you know, significant existential questioning. And many of them do not have, nor do they find it viable uh, to take up what you have. You have, I, I, I don't know if you still consider yourself an evangelical Christian, uh, but if you are, you have, yeah, so yeah. Okay, well, a lot of people are in that place, okay? Yeah. A lot of people are there, okay, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and and so um, that's exactly uh, uh, you know what 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 framework can they bring to bear and not and I don't mean a theoretical framework I don't mean lacking a theoretical framework it should have one but it's not reducible to a theoretical framework it has to be a whole existential yes. right framework for how to r respond to either the you know these these things that are either calling us to try and transcend or threatening us with despair and nihilism and so we have these perennial problems you know, that that beset us. And then we have historical forces that um, come upon us. So I have, an, I have training um, that allows me to talk about that historical progress, um, at least in, uh, in some important aspects of it. And then I also, as a cognitive science, I have cognitive scientists and cognitive psychologists, I do a lot of work on this. I have a lot of training on how we cultivate meaning, how, what it might mean to cultivate wisdom, what it might mean to understand these uh, awakening experiences in a non-dismissive manner. Mm -hmm. And so I've been trying to, as best as I can, uh, integrate a historical argument and a scientific argument, really address this question about how can we address these historical forces and get a worldview that resituates us? And how can we align that with our best understanding of our meaning cultivation machinery so that we can give people a way of, of responding to this meaning crisis. So that, that's what my project is. The, the book that I did with Christopher Mastabecho and Philip Misovic uh, was, a, was a, a first book in a four book series. And it was basically a book introducing people to the meaning crisis via what we think is uh, an important cultural symbolic uh, expression of it, which is the, 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 the you know, this, this explosion of interest in zombies and the zombie apocalypse. And we argue in that book, and. Uh, we just posted last week a discussion between Chris and I, Chris and I, where we went through very carefully why we think the, the zombie mythology is exactly the mythology of the meaning crisis right now. And so that's what the first book is about. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. I'm excited to get into your books. Um, I've been really diving into the 20, so far 26 part uh, meaning crisis. <laughs> Listen to them all. And to be perfectly honest, now that I'm, up to 26 i think i'm going to start again and listen right. from the beginning so i feel like there's something wrong with me to be able to listen to that many hours of something but it's just <laughs> so it's so on uh i mean it's, it's it's been the perfect combination just a gush of uh confirming of some things that have been on my mind but also challenging so things like you uh you're critical of the secularization of that happened with Hegel and 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 yes. such, and you're also critical of the autodidact. And I consider myself to be an autodidact, sort of trying to secularize religion. Um, yeah. So, anyway, I've I've appreciated it. I have a question that should be simple. Are there, plan for how many more of those are going to be? We're up to cognitive sure. science now. 
Yeah, so we uh, we just released the 27th video on Friday. And so it, the, the series is divided equally, right? There's basically 25 episodes that trace the historical argument, and it yeah. pivots on 25 and into 26. And then the second half is the cognitive scientific argument, which is, you know, and it takes that much. What is this meaning machinery that we're talking about? What's going on there? Why is it so important? And can we use that to understand? If we get a cognitive scientific understanding of meaning machinery, uh, can we use that? And I mean, again, in a non-dismissive way, to understand these processes that we've been talking. And, and of course, there's been cognitive science all throughout the historical, and then that gets picked up and developed in the second half. So there's going to be another 25 episodes. We've, we've all, yeah, we, we're almost done filming. Uh, so it'll go to 50 episodes. Um, and, and so what happens is we, I, go, I go through the cognitive science and I try to uh, get, uh, present what I think is a, a hope, an insightful account of this meaning machinery and then use it to articulate uh, many of the aspects of what's labeled um, spirituality. But the point is, I, I hope I can, persuade people at least of the value that I can give a coherent, integrated, and I hope, you know, theoretically insightful and hopefully mm -hmm. existentially important understanding of all these things rather than just having mm -hmm. a loose umbrella, right? And then, and then, and, and then, and then I dive into the, these perennial problems. Why do we lose meaning and, and, and what, what are the responses to that? And then after bringing that all together, then there's a sort of a final four uh, episodes, which we're just about to film, where I put the, the response to the meaning crisis that I've argued for into, I hope, a, a creative dialogue of a network of people that I think are also harbingers of the meaning crisis. People like uh, like Heidegger, Barfield, Jung, Tillich, Nishitani, uh, and so. And then the series ends with sort of hopefully giving my response setting it into a context so there's a lot of, uh, of richness there for people to discuss and reflect on how to respond to the meaning crisis. So that's how it's going. That's amazing. And and uh, you said hopefully insightful for the first 25. I would say definitely insightful. Thank you. I It's everybody listening to this. I mean, turn this video off and go listen to those 25. But, um, but what I'm hoping to, like I say, add to that work reminds me of that I, I feel a, a, a feeling of the Great Commission you know the Great Commission from humanity yeah yep. but and I had to get into it I'll, I want to ask the question but uh, I had a, a spiritual mystical feeling experience good years ago that, um, precipitated um, in, in in such an interesting way I felt like I heard the voice of God and then after I mean, not literally the voice of after that, I've had a, an energy, a mental energy level yep. to follow yep. an idea through yeah. that yep. I, I truly did not have before. And I'm trying to, it was, it was a deity that spoke to me, but I am wondering, do you have a similar situation? Did you have, or did you have one or two kind of very um, specific points in time where you had some kind of uh, revelatory experience? So first of all, let me. No, no. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, first of all, let, I, I want to reinforce uh, what I think is the authenticity. So I, I've done quite a bit. Of, I just presented at, at this at the SPP conference in San Diego. Many people have these awakening experiences. Yaden's done some work on it. Griffiths has done some work on it. Uh, Newberg has done work on it. Uh, and so you know, a lot of people have it, and a lot of people, and it, it lines up with other work on what's called quantum change theory. 
bad name for a psychological theory. It has nothing to do with quantum mechanics. But anyways, um, oh, right, the, the, the number of people that have these experiences and they, they, and they feel called, there's kind of a normative demand put on them to transform their lives, right, and transform, uh, you know, themselves. And, and, and the research is showing that many people, in fact, do this and that they, by a lot of measures, many of them objective, their lives get better um, across the board. You're nodding. And so uh, yeah. I, I want to just, I, I, I want to, I guess what I'm trying to do is just encourage you to, you know, savor and appreciate the value of your experience, because I, I don't think it's an experience that, because what I'm saying is our culture tends to be at least explicitly dismisses of that, which is unfortunate because like, yeah. you know, it looks like around 40% of the population are having these non-pathological, beneficial, transformative states. And we need to take that back into account, uh, you know, even, it, even into our psychological and cognitive modeling. So I just wanted to say that to you. I wanted to sort of, I guess, if it matters to you, I'm just trying to validate your experience. Well, I appreciate that. No, I really do appreciate it. Um, Based on everything I've heard from from you so far in your lectures, I felt that I didn't feel that you would size it. Kind of one of the things that's been so um, uh, so affirming. It, I think the idea, um, one of the things about in the meaning crisis, is um, that this idea of certainty crept to um, yeah. Christianity really, um, or not just Christianity, crept into cognition. Um, across the board in a way that that is super healthy. I it's a it's a complete mystery to me what happened to me that day, but it's a mystery in a way. Or uh, what what came to mind was the scripture uh, about uh, uh, it's in Acts I think Paul in in um, Paul in Athens when he well in God we live and move and have our being. Well, it's uh, the one about, uh, actually the one about um, to the unknown God. Do you remember yes, that? Yes, yes. Yeah. And that, yeah. and that's, and he, and he, yeah, he's on the area of and, and he's addressing the unknown God. And then he says, then some of your poets have, and I think he's, uh, most people think it's a stoic poet, right? Some of your poets have said, yeah, in, in him, we live and move and have our being. Yeah, that, that, that's an, I know that passage yeah. very well. Yeah, that's how, that's how I feel now. I feel like, actually, I don't feel. Paul, who has the certainty of I know yeah. the God that you, I feel like the people the statue to the unknown ah, God, yeah, and yeah. I feel that, and I feel some real, um, I don't know, real comfort in that. I guess because of thirty whatever years of of uh, feeling I needed to be certain. Uh, so That's I don't good. know. I'm flipping I'm scripture I around. I guess I'm taking it wrong, but. Uh, no, no, you're not. No, no. I mean, you can identify with who you want in the story. I was pointing out that, um, and, and maybe this is helpful, uh, that Paul uh, Paul was pointing to something that sounds to me like one of these experiences, this experience of something that's so profound that you feel like you in it, you live and move and have your being. So I was, yeah. I was pointing that, uh, I think, although you may not be uh, touching the God the, that Paul had in mind, I think you were touching an experience. You've had an experience yeah. that he's definitely alluding to, because I think that's clearly what's going on in the poetry that he's quoting. The strength. I think there's a strength. Thank you. I think there's a strength in uh, the idea of of acknowledging no God. Totally, totally, totally. Um, huge strength, actually. And uh, there's actually a path a pathology to knowledge of that. Um, what the things you've said have really pointed that out to me. That's going to be part of, so, I mean, I'm just gesturing. I'm going to give arguments for this. So I don't want people jumping on me, but I mean, right. But 
I'm going to, I'm going to be giving arguments that if we get this deeper sense of meaning, we can recover because it's not de novo with me, but we can recover an alternative notion of the sacred that is not pinned to a supernatural object that we have to have a stable certain grasp on. But instead, we should think of sacredness as, right, as getting into a deep contact, uh, coupling with an inexhaustible aspect of reality that is an ongoing source of our ability to, um, you know, to generate meaning. And that that meaning right. generation shouldn't be thought to be any kind of project that comes to a culmination or final conclusion. So and right. many, many people are arguing right now for that, uh, even in theological circles. Uh, it goes back to at least people like Schlegel and others, and I think you can maybe make an argument that Coolridge, whether or not Barfield takes it up from Coolridge is something I'm still exploring, so I'm not competent to talk about that. But this notion of sacredness, right, as this inexhaustibleness that constantly affords the capacity yes. for self-transcendence rather than being a stable thing that we have to get it. So it has, right. it has some of that element of permanent transgression in it from the Gnostics, right, that I talked about. Right. So that... So I'm going to try and articulate that alternative sense of sacredness precisely because, well, two things. I think it follows out of the argument I'm making, but also because I think it is articulating what a lot of people like you are talking to me about, that they're getting this alternative sense of sacred where that old model just is not describing their experience well. And so I have the, I have these sort of two, I've got the empirical evidence from people I'm talking to saying, no, it's that right? This new way of talking about sacredness, that resonates with me. And then I've got this, I've got this cognitive scientific argument about meaning making. And I think I'm going to try and show that the two come very well together. So you may find that helpful. Oh, I mean, I will find it helpful, John. I, I <laughs> like it. This has been, the, the, discovering that series, you know, has just brought so many things. I don't want to get, I, 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 could t I feel like I could talk to you all day, but I do want to get on to um, sure. Flat Earth and just see First of all, are you familiar with uh, the Flat Earth and what's you said you've watched or you um, that Jonathan Pajot has talked about it? Oh, before I f uh, before I forget, I'll answer your question. We don't have to discuss it. Yes, I have had uh, actually several what we, many people would call mystical experiences. Uh, many, in fact, in my life. Uh, my, I mean, because I've been practicing uh, for a very long time, a lot of transformative practices, you know, you know uh, meditation, uh, contemplation, uh, pranayama, lectio divina, right? Uh, yeah. Lots. So I've had many, many uh, uh, experiences. Uh, so if you, yeah, if you're concerned that uh, I'm only speaking from the outside theoretically, that's not the case. I'm also speaking from the inside experientially. Hmm. I wasn't really concerned. I just wanted to hear it. I don't think anybody could talk these the way you. Do. There's a weird combination of academic uh with practical passion like i from yeah. from you i get the sense of like i've known a lot of really great pastors in in my life my father's a pastor uh who is yeah. largely responsible for the way my brain works to be honest and uh it's a feeling i get from you that's pastor like um just in to, in that way of like when when nobody's around and you're by yourself this is what's on your mind and and it's not a it's not just a job you know and thank you thank you I, for I, saying that. i think yeah. paul i think paul does that paul vanderclay i think paul does that for people too and i also think jonathan does that too i mean jonathan has a very astute way of mixing um some very i think philosophically astute 
um, inter semiotic interpretations of symbolism yeah. with tremendous sort of personal uh, and existential import for people. So, uh, yeah, I think uh, those two men also. Um, uh, and I think uh, the woman who's struggling, uh, I, I mean that in a complimentary way, uh, with these questions, uh, uh, I, I, I don't know her last name. Her first name is Sevilla, and she does quality existence. And she's trying to use uh, Persig's Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance as sort of a framework with which, within which to wrestle with the meaning crisis. I think she also uh, is doing that same kind of integration that you're talking about. So there's many people who are trying to do, uh, in my mind at least, the thing you're pointing to in my work. And that's also very encouraging for me. Okay, great. I'm going to look, I'm going to look that up. Uh, yeah, because uh, it does seem to be a lot of men uh, <laughs> in this, so it would be great to... Uh, I would like to talk. I would. I mean, I would really. I'm happy if she'd like go on her her YouTube channel. She's done a few episodes about me and my work. I, I would be very happy uh, to talk to her. I'd, I'd love to have her on my channel at some point. Uh, yeah, I think she, uh, she she's really, 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 really interesting. Anyways, to, to cool. your point, I've I've watched two or three videos. Um, viewers probably know both from the series and from some of my interviews that I don't like. Um, I, the form of rationality that about sort of you know de de debunking and de dis destroying people. Um, I, I think that undermines the Socratic approach to rationality that it, 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 I'm deeply convinced is the right path uh, for understanding and unpacking rationality. Now, I do think if insofar as the uh, let me just be clear, insofar as authors are claiming to refute scientific theories, then at that level, it's fair game to respond and say, no, no, here's the evidence, here's the theoretical argument, uh, and, right? And mm. I, I, you know, I don't feel compelled to do that because a lot of people are doing that. I'm more talking now about what you're talking about. I'm talking about the tone and the framework from which that's happening. If people are just saying, well, these people are presenting, uh, you know, a theory, for want of a better word, uh, although in, in science, theory is a much more, much more meaningful term than it is in everyday life. Uh, discourse and you know let's say they're presenting hypothesis perhaps that's better they're presenting a hypothesis here's their arguments and the evidence here's my counter arguments and here are the counter evidence and the counter arguments and the counter evidence are just overwhelming and they've been overwhelming for a very long time so i like you i don't really feel me a need to talk about that aspect of it right what i'm more concerned about is what you're concerned about and i think what jonathan has been concerned about is exactly what is it that motiv motivating people to undertake this uh because they are they are clearly for an alternative worldview. That's the level at which we're talking here. And I'm very, as you know from the series, I'm very, very interested in worldviews about, you know, this agent arena relationship, the attempt to get some kind of attunement uh, between them uh, and, and within that, right, what does that mean and, and the trend. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think I think it is fair to say that the flat earth phenomena is pitched at this level of the agent arena relationship and what people are trying to propose is an alternative worldview in which they feel not without some legitimacy they could find the meaning that they that they've lost i mean yeah. i mean peter berger and uh, chris and i are using this in the second book he had this notion of a sacred canopy people used to feel the cosmos like a sacred canopy that was over them and there was and it provided yeah, the firmament, and and then only that the structure of the uh, the structure of the cosmos was basically a, a teacher, right? It was an educator. It it, it it exemplified and taught people how to become better people. I forget the the author of the book, the wonderful book called The Wisdom of the World, where he articulates 
uh, th this idea of the world being this almost like a this grand tutor, right? That or grand mentor that would lead us, right. and that and what people I think rightly feel, and Chris and I and talked about this, and Chris and I, Chris and I and Philip talked about it in the book as well, right? Our worldview doesn't give that. When we look out, we just have what Pascal worried about, you know, those infinite spaces that terrify. There's nothing in our worldview that seems to have that role of exemplifying, teaching, and guiding me in the cultivation of meaning and wisdom. And I think yeah. part of what's happening with the meaning crisis people is there's an attempt. There's two things going on. There's an attempt to get back to worldview that seems to work for us because it is so consonant with our phenomenological experience. That's Jonathan Pajot's point. And I think it is also allied with, which I don't know if Jonathan talked about that very much. I don't remember. Um, so a Gnostic uh, thing going on here, because what's going on here is also it's, it's integrated with a conspiracy theory, a gr often a grand conspiracy theory. Right. And, and remember, the Gnostics have this idea that what's keeping us from our meaning is that there's this, you know, there's this network of uh, of of beings in higher power who are yeah are imprisoning us in a false worldview that's actually and so there's also the there's the gnostic so i think i see in the in the flat earth i see the attempt to get uh, uh get back to a worldview in which the cosmos is our is our, is a mentor of i'm struggling for a word but it is a mentor yeah. us. Sure. allies allied with also the gnostic uh, attempt to respond to the meaning crisis. I feel trapped, and there must be a conspiracy behind this entrapment. So that's Sorry, so, awesome. Sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. Um, no, no, no. I, I'll just keep talking. So yeah. uh, <laughs> I, can, I have the tendency to do the same. But um, so that that actually is. I was going to specifically ask you about whether there's a Gnostic yeah. uh, element to this because you were saying that I'd never heard World War II described Gnostic nightmare yeah. place the way that Hitler's Hitler and I guess the you know psyche psyche of the German people brought together these various elements to this Gnostic nightmare. So I wonder if the I wonder if the flat Earth is kind of a Gnostic fever uh, dream, if not a nightmare, but a Gnostic. I don't know what because it's not it's not exactly the same. It's not causing them to do horrible things. No, but no, there no. Is this, this is a sense of needing to yeah. Uh, there's a sense of outside forces. There's a, a conspiracy, theory, and that's something that I, I I was hoping to talk to you about. So I'm I'm so glad you mentioned it on your own. Yep, yep. So I think that's that. I mean, the thing the thing that's in um, intoxicating, and I'm trying to pick up on both aspects of that word. You know, intoxication is both something and sort of opens us up, but there's also toxicity in it, right? Um, okay. Yeah. So the thing that's intoxicating about conspiracy theories. Um, uh, is that they 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 give a narrative structure to our suffering, right? They hmm. they create a story in which the right. forces at work are people and their motives are really intelligible. And if I'm the victim of the conspiracy, I have a central role in that narrative. I'm not peripheral, and so it gives a tremendous and it it it, it what it does is it converts your sense of suffering into a sense of entrapment a sense of being entrapped, misled, and that, and then that gives you the hope uh, that you can break through. Yeah. You can have that. It also, Go ahead. It also gives you, in my view, it gives you a very tight-knit group. You can find a community. There's no tighter and stronger than people who are battling an obvious yep, force, that's, that's right. an evil that's, force. 
Yes, exactly. So that's exactly it. That's what I mean. That's a good point that by, by sort of it, it configures you at the center of this narrative. And if people agree with you about the narrative, then you will be drawn together. You will be centered together. You will be cohered together. So you're going to get you're going to get a communitas uh, with other people. And you're going to get a narrative that makes sense. And not only it gives you a call to action, it tells you what to do, right, in order to yeah. respond to the conspiracy. And if what you're doing is giving, what, what it seems like you're doing is giving them a worldview that is consonant with their, their phenomenological experience and makes the universe a home, a mentoring mm -hmm. home, then that's going to be deeply, deeply attractive to people. Right. And what I find fascinating and, and what I think is actually the great opportunity of the flat earth phenomena that they're very open and candid, like uh, the, Mark Sargent and I did not have any disagreement when, when we talked about meaning. He got into his new spirituality and openness of the new spirituality that he has. Um, it, it's because the object of their... Um, because the, the, in this case, uh, like NASA and, you know, the Illuminati or whoever, because they're a real, uh, in their minds, a, a real force, and because the Earth, there's a physical element to what they're saying, they don't even mind saying that, like, yeah, we just find meaning in this. Like, you know, once somebody's not yelling at them anymore about, like, two sticks uh, a few miles apart and measuring the shadows, once you're not yelling at them, he was perfectly happy to say, yeah, uh, you know, like there was this great sense of meaning. There was a feeling that someone built this dome that we're on. And so that whoever that is, is, is and cares or and we're cared for or so fairly explicit about it. Um, yeah, I, no, you Oh, what I was going to say is, I, so there's a lot of work. Uh, where's this book? It's, I don't know. Uh, there's this scarcity, uh, right? This book. Um, okay. And it's a, it, there's a lot of work uh, done by, I don't know how to pronounce his name. I've never heard it uh, spoken. I think it's Moulin Ethan. Uh, but I, I, if I get it wrong, I apologize. But the, the work on, on scarcity mentality is that when there's a scarcity of things, right, uh, a scarcity of some resource, you know, you can see a sort of bunch of behaviors. Uh, and I think what I would argue what we're seeing, in, not just in the Flat Earthers, but in many other groups that Chris and I call the neo-Gnosticism, neo not neo-Nazism, neo-Gnosticism, right? right. We, and this is clearly an instance of neo-Gnosticism, right? Mm. What, we, what we see in that right, is um, the response to a scarcity of meaning. And so meaning has, has become so scarce in these people's lives and in other people's lives, again, I don't. Want, I'm not talking about just them, but we're, the context of the discourse that we're having is is them, right? And and so there is right there is such a scarcity of meaning that right the value of uh, uh, obtaining this meaning has been severed, right, uh, from a concern I think ultimately with truth, and and that and that's that that that's where. And that's where I, I mean, I'm trying to be critical, but I'm trying to be critical in a way that isn't dismissive. So the, the thing in general about, uh, I, you remember when I did the, in the I, I, in the 26th episode, I made an argument for plausibility, right? That you want a lot of you want a lot of evidence converging to your central idea, and then you want that idea to be able to explain many different things. Yes. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so 
and, and so conspiracy theories have the one side. If you give them, it explains a lot. And, and, and the explaining we're talking about here is not just existential. Sorry, not just theoretical. This is existential explanation. This is not just giving an answer. This is making meaningful connections so that they can live their lives in new ways. So yeah. it's just powerfully, powerfully elegant yeah. in that. But, but it's it's the, the how they come up with the construct is not right. usually not in a highly trustworthy manner, right? And, and so the concern for that then the concern is that you're getting into. You, you, I mean, there's a, you know, you, you, you set the context for this discourse, and I'm trying to be very respectful of it. So, oh, but sure. uh, there's an element of bullshitting here. There's an element of the salient of the explanation, ma making them indifferent to careful, right. you know, convergence on the truth. And sure. and so I would say, for all my attempts to charitably understand them, which I want to do, I, I would say that my understanding also extends to saying I think there's a huge self-deceptive aspect. Going, going on here uh, because in general most conspiracy theories are, are example and then what the conspiracy theorist always says but some conspiracy conspiracy theories are true right. yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, but I, yeah. I, I need specific evidence that that's specifically the case here yeah no I know what you're saying and I, I think that's true I mean it's particularly dismissive because I'm gonna say a funny sentence but if the earth is round <laughs> then obviously, yeah. then obviously there is a element of self-deception going on if the earth right. is flat then we're the ones deceived but i think that's the case but the other element i wanted to ask you about and it's it's something you've touched on a little bit in your series but my my perception is that um the the intuition itself is under a bit of an attack uh at the moment um that and and I could be wrong. I, I, I'm totally open to critique on this, but it seems to me like um, that we know that to form a scientific uh, hypothesis, you need intuition. But then once, but then once you're once you've got that, the, the idea is almost to take intuition out of the equation. And I, I, I just personally like there's a there's a documentary called say it's like. I, I'm not sure. I think you would enjoy it. It has some interesting people like um, Chris, who you right. may or may not uh, have heard of. Work. I'd like to talk to him directly someday, but I know oh, I would love to talk to him, not just because his accent makes me feel so calm and nice. Uh, <laughs> such a nice man. Uh, so, yeah, my, my thing, my thought is that intuition is under attack and that like, you know, the object of our intuition can can be good or can be correct or incorrect and is almost always a combination of correct and incorrect because it's beyond the, the mist of articulated knowledge, right? So our intuition, but I feel like if, if you, if intuition is discouraged, um, I think it is, but this is, it's, it's really just an intuition that this is happening. I don't have evidence. Okay. Um, <laughs> but, uh, very, something very appealing about um, just going with your intuition, uh, you know, and going against the grain and, you know, like, does that bring anything up in your mind? I, I'm, I'm yeah, it does. I mean, and, so there's stuff both in the first half of the series and the second half of the t series that I think uh, points to that. First of all, I do, I, I do, I do talk about intuition. I, 
I talk about it in connection with Flow, for example, and the work that Leo and I, Leo Ferrar and I published. And I think I, I think we're getting uh, I think we're getting to a good account of what intuition is and how it works. This machinery of implicit learning um, and an in, and potentially an insight cascade and things like that. And that goes back to the work of Hogarth. I think of maybe Reber. Um, although I don't know if Reber would completely agree with that. I don't think he would disagree. So that's an interesting question. Um, I think there's a place in, um, for, first of all, our psychology for like really acknowledging this phenomena and acknowledging its importance. Secondly, there is, uh, and, and this will become clear in the second half of uh, the series, there, as you said, there is much that we do that we have that is, in a very sense, pre-inferential. Before we can make our inferential processes, we have to do all this other work. And you've also seen that at the beginning and, and the, uh, of the series and the, even the most current um, episode that's up on problem formulation. Before I can start doing any reasoning or problem solving, I have to first formulate my problem well. And that matter of construal is, is non-inferential in nature. It's indispensable. It's not infallible. It is far from infallible, but it's indispensable. And, though, and we, have to, we, have to get, we have to accept both of those together. We have to reject that, you know, I, I, I should, we should reject. I do not like it when we either demonize, which you're pointing to, one of our faculties, or we, 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 we make it a divine thing. My intuition is neither. Right, it is indispensable yeah. to me, and it puts me into access to you know, with participatory knowing and 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 that 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 deeper primordial machinery by which the agent in a relationship coupling gets going, right? And so intuition is you know indispensable, but it's also far from infallible. I've already articulated in this. There's many many ways, and so my answer to that, and which I, I'm is, well, what you should do is you should bring back intuition, uh, back into your epistemology, uh, but talk about, you know, a normative theory on intuition. How do you make intuition operate well, uh, right? And, and that what, what we should be looking for, right, is neither a dismissal uh, nor some sort of worshipful, you know, acceptance of our the, the pronouncements of right. our intuition. What we should do is get a good understanding of it, and from that, get a clearer understanding of what what good intuition is like and how we can best cultivate it. So that's my response to that. And yeah. so I, I think we should. I, I agree with you. We shouldn't be dismissing intuition, but on the other hand, I don't think we should just accept it in an uncritical, common sense fashion. Right. Yeah, for sure. And I think. One of the things that I, that you've kind of answered the the problem in a way, but um, it's a answer. But wisdom, because you speak about wisdom and you yeah. speak about it in a way that implies it's a real thing, and uh, you know, I think that's the that's the idea is that wisdom would temper everything. Wisdom would temper oh, totally, our totally. Um, temper our intuition. Wisdom would would tell us, okay, you've 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 done enough intuiting now. Go go back to your uh, to what you know and see if you make some connections and keeps keeps it going back and forth like that. Um, so yeah, that's really cool. I, I definitely think wisdom is a real thing. I was just, Igor Grossman put together what he called the Toronto Wisdom Task Force in which we got some of, you know, uh, you know the premier people doing work on um, wisdom within psychology and cognitive science. Uh, wow. and, and we were in a room, I, I think it's gonna be uploaded onto YouTube if anybody wants to watch it. I, it those for, I think, like six or seven hours because we're talking and really arguing. So this is a real thing. 
what's going to happen in the series is I'm going to I'm going to try to articulate two things, and I hope this does not sound pretentious. So I, I'm again asking for people's patience and indulgence because I put a lot of time and effort to just articulating this and uh, not just stating it. I'm, I'm going to try and uh, give a cognitive scientific theory of what enlightenment like what it is to have a comprehensive ability to respond to all of these perennial problems and afford self-dependence and how to incorporate uh, these exceptional experiences. And I'm also going to, uh, and that's that's like uh, two or three, three, I think, episodes. And then I devote, I think, three or four episodes to what's wisdom? Come around back to that question. That's also towards the end. So can we, once we build this cognitive scientific machinery of meaning cultivation, can we integrate it with right? All these other things to get a deeper sense of what would enlightenment mean for us and what does wisdom mean for us? And therefore, this question, we, I think we can now start to talk about in an intelligible way. What mm. is it wisely cultivate enlightenment? What is that? And what does that look like? How can that be both individually and collectively pursued? That's great. So you said something about sounding pretentious, pretentious to take that, min that much time to get to and I would say, I would like to affirm you and say that the, you have presented the meaning crisis in a way that's sufficiently complicated to have truth to it. And I think the people who got heavily, heavily into Jordan Peterson, I was going to try not to bring up Jordan Peterson. In the topic, <laughs> but I was, honestly, I was one of the people who was obsessively watching him. The reason was, his worldview was sufficiently complicated and sufficiently kind of depressing to be <laughs> real. And so uh, the, the fact that it took you 20 episodes to get to the need for cognitive science, to get to, through the history of, of the progression of cognition throughout history, to, to people who have the intuition that, um, that crisis, we know that going to have to be complicated it's going to be a long long explanation the, the thing that concerns me is that um you and i uh, and many other people happen to to find it life-giving to to think about a problem that's 25 hours in describing yeah. Yeah. and and without any judgment whatsoever there's a lot of society truly not judging them at all who don't yeah. have that the, the mental energy uh well no they have plenty of mental energy their mental energy is towards something else that's that's deeply uh, meaningful and resonant with them but they're still in my view they're still in need of of hearing some of this meaning crisis stuff so i'd love to figure out and i'm excited because i'd love to figure out what um what the practical way the practical lived in embodied or, or ritualistic way, mytho mythological way, this yeah. done, whether it's a new mythology, because I know there's, you know, Hegel and, and the people you've mentioned are uh, kind of uh, in favor of maybe a new mythology, but yeah. can, you create, can you create a new mythology without it being basically, you know, without it sure. being totally constricted to the ideology of the needle, the, the the point of the spear, where we are right now. You know what I mean? Can it? Oh, that's it very well broad, said. Can it be broad enough for us to go through the eye of that needle, and transcend back a possibility? Yeah. And so, yeah. I, I had a thought that I wanted to. Um, I, I want to keep this to to roughly an hour, which we're almost at. But um, I, can, I can go a little bit longer if you wish. Well, thank you very much, and I, I really appreciate your time. As I was preparing and 
think of what to to you. I was thinking about this Gnosticism and the idea of needing to transcend, um, uh, to transcend or to get past forces that are kind of holding us back. And I think part of the intuition of, of genuine uh, Gnostic thinking is, is that feeling that it's, it's not, like, it's, it's okay to think that there's an enemy or that there's a, an object that, that's holding us back, but it, it, it's better to think that there is something less, um, there's something less calculated, there's something that's less of a necessarily a consciousness, something related to actually our own consciousness that's holding us yep. back that we need to transcend, and that's self-transcendent. I'm not yep. saying anything new here, but what I wrote down here, I'll just read it because I don't know if I can properly, is that there's not enough, there's not enough respect necessarily for, um, for cognitive transcendence. So um, the, the idea that, I, I got obsessed with the idea of epistemology sure. a couple of years ago, or maybe a year ago, and uh, it, it occurs to me that, um, so if Gnostics were thinking of, transcend, of, of God as something we need to transcend, go a little further and say um, that we're always transcending our conception of God. Yeah, that we're yeah. not we're not transcending a real god we're not going to come out on the other side clearing yeah. wiping our eyes and oh now we don't need god anymore that's one of the things that's like maybe like we need a new god we need the unknown god and we're kind of like one of the reasons that the exodus and the the um the story of the israelites in the desert so people still and has this air of uh meaning is that we are in a sense we called to uh nomads or we we need to be nomads so we need to transcend the wilderness we're in to the next to the next wilderness you know what we do is we transcend we we, we get really excited you know like in things like and the scientific uh, revolution, and then we get to a point where we need to transcend that because yeah. because our conception of it has become rigid, and our conception of it has become an idea. And so there's always this there there always needs to be an unknown God, and and that that's that's kind of one of the greatest takeaways that I've had from. And, and feel free to disagree with it, but oh, no, one no, of the uh, things I've gotten from from what you're you're saying. Yeah, and, th and I'm going to try and uh, argue that that. First of all, that was very well said. Um, and, Thank you. And, and your way of reconfiguring, revalorizing the Exodus mythology, um, I think is really interesting because it's typically been given a very teleological uh, reading that the point is to get to the culminating final place, whereas you're saying, no, it's this open-ended call uh, for to be forever nomads. And I, I like that rearticulation because, like I said, I'm going to argue that the, the the this machinery of meaning cultivation is ultimately grounded in the machinery of relevance realization, which I'm starting to articulate. And that machinery is inherently open-ended in, in the way it has to operate. And that and, and that um, idea that what we're we're going to be doing is is being um, immersed in an ongoing process right. rather than focused. Um, at achieving a particular state, so um, we're gonna we're gonna move from oh, what's his name? It's oh, um, what's the book? Where's the book? I'm trying to remember the book. Um, yeah, there's a book called uh, Philosophers Without Gods, um, 
And there's a guy in here, uh, what's his name? Uh, I'm going to talk about him later. Uh, had an article called Transcendence Without God on Atheism and Invisibility, Anthony uh, Simon Layden. Um, before people get sort of upset about that, uh, that the transcendence without God, he's trying to articulate, and I think Paul Acosta does this also in his notion of secular wonder. He's trying to say, that, well, there's two notions of transcendence. There's one that he calls the proximity notion, uh, right, where the, the point of transcendence is to get close to the inherently transcendent thing. Or there's something, I think he calls it like a process or an activity version of transcendence. No, the point is transcendence itself, right? Yeah. And, and I think and Nietzsche was trying to articulate this. He was trying to get back the notion of self-transcendence. But as I argued, I think he put it into a framework that ultimately uh, uh, mis misframes it in a certain way. So I agree with that. And I think that you can see people who I would regard as modern Gnostics. Tillich um, famously, and I'm going to talk about him towards the end. You know, Tillich famously argued uh, for the God beyond the God of theism as the yeah. only solution uh, to the meaning crisis. I mean, that's the, that's the core thesis of the courage to be. And it's a reflection of our ultimate concern, not our final conclusion. That's the thing about mm. it. It's about our ultimate right. concern, not our yeah. final conclusion. So I think you're going to find um, that not only do I already agree with what you're saying, but I think you're going to find that I'm going to articulate stuff that will give you, I hope, a richer vocabulary uh, mm. to articulate the very uh, insightful thing you've already said about what, that this, this sort of constant open-ended transcendence is a better way of appreciating, and I mean that word very deeply, like music appreciation, art appreciation, yeah. of appreciating the sacred as a fount of inexhaustibility rather than a permanent location of finality. Right. And if you think about it, the way I like to think about it, and I, I have absolute confidence that, that future stuff is going to do exactly what you say for me. But oh, that's, that's probably too high praise, but, but thank but you. But if you, if you think about it, like, it, it's not too hard to think back maybe when, when we were children and our, uh, what our conception of certain things was and how it was maybe functional in some ways, like maybe reading or something like that, um, and our early grasp of language. And, and I think we need to respect children and what they learn and, and the way they learn and the fallacies that they come across um, that are natural, um, logical fallacies. But I think that uh, what I'd like to, to promote is an idea that you, even edge of all of the things we're doing, there's no reason to think not still childlike. Yes, as the and child that, is to the adult, the adult is to the sage. So the we, idea, exactly, yeah, there you go. Yeah, so the idea, yeah. the idea is to n not disrespect our lack of knowledge, but but respect, uh, respect the process. So respect the child and respect ourselves as children who need to continue moving forward. Children with, you know, we don't know where the end goal is, and maybe one advantage that young children have is not being wrapped up in what the end goal is or maybe the end goal is to be like daddy or mommy but the conception of daddy and mommy is so mystical and magical that <laughs> it's, it's a beautiful goal it's not a it's not a codified here's the goal. you must reach this done it's it's there's always a future mommy or daddy. i think that's all that god really has to be is. Well, it's, it depends. I mean, I, I, I do. I do. There's two things I want to say to that. Uh, one is um, we get something we get something 
like that, that child, that childlike, not childish, that childlike wonder um, um, with, within, if you look within the mystical traditions and when people mm. are, are describing these higher states of consciousness. And what's interesting is how much they do what Tillich is talking about, how much they, and many of them are, you can see that there, there's a struggle going on there because there are, some of them are within orthodox uh, frameworks, but how much they're trying to get beyond the God of theism. And you, you and you have even you have Eckhart talking about the Godhead and how it's beyond right uh, you know in, in a very real sense beyond God uh, and, and you've got you know Carter's book the nothingness beyond God you have all, you have a lot of this language right uh, you know if you read pseudo Dionysus right and I, maybe Jonathan would disagree with me on this but right you, you you get this sense of he keep you know he, whatever you call God isn't God right and and, and he right. Trying to open yeah. you up and open you up, but yeah. but people need to understand, and this is what's important. That's not empty negation. He's opening that up precisely because he's already having experiences that are opening mm. up. Both Plotinus mm. was having these experiences. They're not just negating, right? What they're doing is they're trying to. They're it's negation in the in the service of trying to constantly open us up because it's the trajectory, it's the ongoing trajectory that matters for. If, if you'll allow me bend the term, that's the best way we represent the sacred or God, not in any, not any picture we get, but our trajectory of transformation best exemplifies. I think that's what the mystic doing. that best exemplifies the sacred rather than any conclusion, because here's what happens when people come out of these states. I, I know this. I, I read the research. They will proclaim multiple different and often competing right. contrasting metaphysics. Yeah. I'm not dissing. I'm not dissing metaphysics here. I think we should talk about the ultimate nature of reality philosophically and astutely and wisely. But what I'm saying is, you know, people come out of this and say, "Oh, I, now I know there is a God." And other people say, "Now I know there isn't a God." Or I realize Buddha nature. Or I realize that if I meet the Buddha, I should kill the Buddha on the road, like this. And <laughs> and so you get all. Like, and so yeah. I think if if we try to understand. The value of these articulations in terms of their propositional content, we're just going to fall onto grief because we got massively pluralistic diversity, yeah. massive, massive contradiction. And yeah. there, there's probably some people saying, but I know mine's the right one. And yeah. the problem is you're not acknowledging the other person saying exactly the same thing. Well, I like, think the procedure, the process is what's crucial. I mean, maybe to, maybe to be cheesy, uh, uh, when we get these things, uh, we, it's the manna in the desert. Where it's not a, it's not an, it's not the end. You don't stay where the mana is. You yes, it's not a super satisfying thing. You need to keep moving. You know, you've got, you know, so you don't have the final yeah. goal. You have something that keeps you moving. You remember, and you remember the, the to, to to pick up on the myth. There were people in the story that tried to gather the mana and keep and right. store it and keep it, and it and it rots and it goes bad. And, and the basic point is, no, you, you need to trust God more. You need to have confidence that the fount will keep producing for you, that, yeah. Yeah, that it is yeah. inexhaustible, and that your particular hold on it should always be nourishing but never yeah. final. I think that's a, that's a beautiful – I hadn't thought about that. That is a beautiful – I, I, I actually – man, I, I, I just I, – I had a new thought there, and this has been so – I probably should not springboard into anything else that's going to keep me talking. I feel like I can talk to you for hours and hours, but the meaning crisis, um, the, I haven't read the books yet, but I'm sure they're great. So I'm recommending them, but I'll also definitely recommend the, the 
Shoe series for anybody who who would like to hear more about a very complicated, consistently relatable, consistently real from someone who has uh, a palpable passion for it yourself. And so I just want to say I, I really appreciate that. I've really appreciated this conversation. And um, yeah, did you have a, a closing thought at all based on anything that we've said? I would like to thank all the people that I've worked with, uh, Christopher Master Pietro, Philip Misovic, Anderson Todd, Jensen Kim, uh, Thalia Rancidis, uh, Daniel Gray, Adeline Abramian, um, Hannah Cho, uh, Philip Rusevic. There's just a whole bunch of people, uh, and, my, and Leo Ferraro, uh, my ongoing partner in crime. Uh, I couldn't be where I am without the, uh, the the fantastic work that I get and that, that I have done and I continue to do yeah. do with Leo. Um, and and the, and the, and, the, and I think the, the foundational work for me that I got to do with Tim Lillicrap, Blake Richards on relevance realization. I just want to keep thanking all these people. I'm doing that because I want to remind readers that although I'm speaking and I take responsibility, personal responsibility for what I'm saying, and right, I'm, I'm not trying to dodge that. I do want people to understand how many other people I rely on and how many people have Oh no, you. Uh, oh, sorry, you froze up. Uh, how many people you rely on? I heard. Oh, how many? I stopped. Oh. Are, you there? Are you there? Yes. I, I can't. I can't hear you. Are you still there? Oh. Yeah, yeah. Now, yeah. now I can hear you. Okay, that okay, the, the glitch is gone. I actually, I froze. I stopped speaking as soon as you said that. I'm just saying all the people that I rely on in, in the past on an ongoing manner. Do, important to give them due credit and to thank them well it's thank you with your view oh thank you and thank you it's very consistent to uh your your non-autodidactic uh you yes. know notion yeah. to to want to you all of your ideas have been run through these other wonderful people and that's what yes. i'm kind of trying to do because i don't have access to all the same wonderful people uh that are obsessed with these same issues as i am nothing against the people in my life but i this has been very, very helpful, very, very formational for me. So um, with that, I'll say um, well, one more thing, Aaron. Much. One more thing. Sure. I, I think you should email Paul Vanderclay and, and uh, try and get on his show. Uh, he would be very interested to talk to you. Very interested. Paul, Paul Vanderclay. Yeah, for sure. I did. Yeah, I spoke to him. He, he's, he's one of my other ones in the can. Oh, so you, uh, right. So you were on his show. Uh, well, no, he was on mine, but, you know, I. I don't know that I'm I'm not noteworthy enough to be on his show, but it, it was very <laughs> interesting to to talk to him and and I want to talk to Jonathan Pajo. I want to talk to that uh, would be really good. That would be really good. Yeah, I want to talk to Peter Bug uh, Bogosian. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Peter yeah. yeah. There's, there's a bunch of people I'd love to talk to. So anyway, thank you very much and uh, thank you very much. So just let me know when it's up when you have posted the link and I'll. Uh, is this going up on YouTube? Is that, yes, is that what you yeah, said? it will. So just sound, let me know what's up, and then I'll promote it through my network. Thank you very much. Great, it's great pleasure, Aaron. Great pleasure. Very much. Thank you. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.